Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, COVID-19 is not done with us yet, writes the LA Times editorial board yesterday as Los Angeles County reports more than 3,000 new cases in the last few days. 99% of them are among the unvaccinated, according to the county health department, and they've been fueled by the highly infectious Delta variant. As Californians try to make sense of sometimes contradictory messages around what precautions to take in public, masking when schools reopen, and the protection offered by vaccines, two experts join us to take your questions right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, we try to make sense of the latest news on vaccines, also the state's and CDC's masking guidance as schools prepare to reopen next month, and other issues likely bubbling up for you as we contend with the highly transmissible Delta variant, which has taken hold in the U.S. and fueled surging case numbers in some pockets of California. Joining me is Dr. Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Offit. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Grace Lee, Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford Children's Health and Stanford University School of Medicine, also a member of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Dr. Lee, glad to have you with us as well. Thanks so much for having me. So I assume you are both fully vaccinated, and I'm just curious what kind of precautions you are personally taking these days when you're out in public. Dr. Lee, for example, do you mask when you go indoors into stores? Uh, thanks for that question. So, you know, I, I feel very fortunate uh, living in the Bay Area. Our vaccination rates are incredibly high. Um, over 80% of individuals 12 and older in my own community have uh, been vaccinated. So that's, you know, a tremendous accomplishment and also adds to the level of community protection that I feel in my own community. Um, I will say that in general, um, I take, I, yes, I do wear masks in stores. And the reason I do is because I feel like if I can have that extra layer of individual protection, I think that, you know, it's helpful to me uh, to be able to <laughs> be able to protect myself, but also my family. That said, 
I 100% feel protected against severe disease and hospitalization against COVID. I have no concerns that I'll have a significant infection, uh, but I, I am a cautious person and I am an infectious diseases physician. So I still tend towards um, being risk averse. Hmm. How about you, Dr. Offit? Right. Well, you guessed correctly. I am fully vaccinated, which you would hope would be true since I'm a voting member of the FDA's Vaccine <laughs> Advisory Committee. Um, I, 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 when I go, for example, and walk outside, I don't wear a mask. But if I walk indoors, say at the grocery store around the street, the co corner, I'm masked uh, for similar reasons that, uh, that uh, Dr. Lee is masked. Um, the, 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 I, I, people are in that grocery store probably half are masked, half aren't. And the, under, the, the sign on the store when you walk in is if you're vaccinated, you don't have to be masked. But if you're not vaccinated, you should be masked. And I don't know whether all those other people that are walking around uh, who are unmasked are vaccinated. I assume probably many aren't. So, And because the vaccine is not 100% effective, I, I do want that extra layer of protection. I mean, the vaccine will protect me once the virus attaches and enters and my nose and throat and starts to reproduce itself. Then the, the immunity kicks in. But by putting a mask on, it acts an extra layer of protection that it makes it less likely for the virus even to begin to, to infect me. So I wear a mask still. So this is even though the CDC said that it was basically okay for fully vaccinated Americans to ditch the mask, Dr. Offit. Yes, true. But the, what they said was that it's okay for fully vaccinated Americans to ditch the mask and then assume that everybody is going to follow that instruction. I think if you look at the data, actually, there are many people who are unvaccinated also choose not to wear a mask. I mean, you look at what's happening now. This virus is seeking out unvaccinated populations. And if, you, if you're living in among a relatively unvaccinated population, or if you're in an area, in a store, for example, where there's a significant number of unvaccinated people, you are at some risk. So they, not everybody follows CDC guidelines to the letter. And so there are a lot of people out there that, that are unmasked and also unvaccinated. And I think you have to assume that, frankly, when you're in an indoor situation. Hmm. And Dr. Grace Lee, you mask, even though you're in the Bay Area, as you said, which has a very high percentage of people who are fully vaccinated. L.A. County has recommended that everyone, whether they're vaccinated or not, wear masks inside public spaces like restaurants and stores, in part because they're worried about the spread of the Delta variant. And I was curious if the Delta variant has also factored into your thinking about the precautions you take in public now, Grace Lee. Um, yes, it certainly has. I mean, uh, there are... Um, so, you know, the CDC provides this guidance so that we know um, what makes sense to do in general as a community. But as we know, there's a lot of variability um, in terms of both adherence to um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, but as well as you know, uh, vaccination rates. And so because of that variability, um, the level of protection is not even across the entire U.S. It actually is very variable in different settings. And so, um, you know, I do think it's uh, important to remember that and also to remember that in, in communities where actually there are low vaccination rates, we do know that um, the virus is spreading more quickly. Uh, you know, out of some parts of the country, we're hearing that among those who are hospitalized with COVID infection, and we're still seeing um, many hospitals that are uh, still uh, carrying the burden of caring for COVID-19 patients, 99% uh, of those are um, not, or are unvaccinated. And so, um, 
It is, uh, I think, of concern. And, you know, the reason I wear a mask in part, you know, I do feel protected and I, my family certain, certainly feels protected. We're all vaccinated. However, uh, you know, we also feel like it's important to be able to continue to protect each other and our community. And so in many ways, you know, even though I feel safe um, and I don't feel like I'm at risk for severe disease. Uh, to me, it's just, um, you know, a kind of a, a measure of uh, my sense for wanting to protect others around me who mm. may not have the opportunity be, to be protected either because the vaccine's not available to them or perhaps because they're immunocompromised and not able to respond to the vaccine as well as others. Yes, you're talking about um, just the collective, also the community mindset that we need to have around this. I am wondering, though, as you bring up places in the U.S. and even in pockets of California now where we are seeing the numbers of cases going up quite a bit and a little bit faster even than people expected in some parts of the country to see these kinds of surges. New York is one. Um, what do we know about the Delta variant? Is it is it just more transmissible or is it also more deadly, Grace Lee? Um, well, it's, it certainly seems like it's more transmissible at this point from what we know. And I think that in terms of understanding the severity of disease, um, I think that that data is still forthcoming. To me, it's not yet a clear picture, but it, what is clear, is, again, is that vaccination can protect against severe disease. And those who are unvaccinated continue to uh, be hospitalized and become very ill from COVID-19 infection. Uh, in this case, uh, with Delta variant being uh, one of the strains or variants we're most concerned about right now. Um, the ability for that uh, variant to actually uh, be easily transmitted, I think, uh, means that the chances of becoming infected if you're not already protected um, are just greater. And uh, so we'll just have to see what happens. I, I am, you know, um, I am worried, particularly about our younger kids, so those under 12 who don't have the opportunity to be vaccinated yet. Yes. Um, and my hope is that we can continue to maintain community levels of transmission as low as possible in order to protect all of our um, children and those who are not fully protected by vaccination today. We have been hearing, though, Dr. Paul Offit, about breakthrough cases, for example, among people who are fully vaccinated. And I guess that raises the question for me about how much we know about how transmissible people who are vaccinated, whether with one dose or fully vaccinated, um, how to what degree they are at risk of transmitting COVID to the unvaccinated, like kids. Well, it's always possible. I mean, the, the, the vaccines are highly effective and, and in protecting, especially against severe critical disease, the kind of disease that causes you to go to the hospital or to the intensive care unit or to die. So, so that's good. And, and, and it's, it's true of all vaccines. I mean, somewhat less effective at, at asymptomatic infection where you still might spread, although I think people who are vaccinated and asymptomatically infected probably shed less virus and are less capable of spreading. I think what should give people the most confidence is that, that what you're seeing in this country is the alpha variant has been largely replaced by the Delta variant. It's at least 50% of, of isolates in some areas as high as 80%. Nonetheless, as Dr. Lee said, if you look at hospitalizations and deaths, 99% of that is occurring in unvaccinated people. If the Delta variant were, were resisting, if you will, immunity that's been induced by vaccination or natural infection, you should start to see an increase in the percentage of people who are hospitalized or dying that are that were, were are already previously vaccinated. And that hasn't happened. So that tells you that, that the vaccine 
that the, these vaccines protect against severe critical disease caused by the Delta variant. All the more reason to get vaccinated. And that's the problem. There's just a critical percentage of the population that is still unvaccinated that needs to be vaccinated. Well, Shuga tweets, two kids tested positive at my school and a fully vaccinated parent round two. I guess one of the things that I, I do want to ask, staying with with these infections that we're seeing even among people who are vaccinated, is is whether or not that person could be at risk of long COVID. Like, what do we understand about people who are fully vaccinated and breakthrough infections, which we understand to be rare, but really not hard to find anecdotally. I mean, me, myself, I was just having conversations with people this past week and and had at least two where I was told about somebody who had a breakthrough case. I'm wondering about, you you mentioned and touched on transmissibility, but I'm also just wondering about those people being at risk for long COVID. I think that's possible. There was just a paper that came out in Nature, um, a study out of Norway looking at long COVID, and and it certainly was possible for people with milder disease to go on to develop these these symptoms of headache, fatigue, brain fog, uh, shortness of breath more than two months after vaccination. But but again, these vaccines are doing what they're designed to do, which is is to prevent hospitalization and death. I think we'll learn more about the, the subtle issues of transmissibility or long COVID and mild infection as we move on. But um, again, right now, the vaccines are doing what they're doing, but, you know, they can only do them if you're vaccinated. And I think that's really where the problem is right now is we just have too many people who are making the choice not to vaccinate themselves and thus putting themselves and those with whom they come in contact at risk. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also a member of the FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee. We also have Dr. Grace Lee with us, Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford Children's Health and Stanford University School of Medicine, a member of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about the Delta variant or vaccines generally? What is bubbling up for you where we are right now as a nation and a state with regard to the pandemic? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're trying to make sense of the sometimes confusing messages around what we should be doing right now to take care of ourselves and public questions about the best way to approach masking in schools, questions about the protection that's offered by vaccines against the Delta variant. And we're talking with Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, Grace Lee, professor of pediatrics and infectious diseases at Stanford Children's Health and Stanford University School of Medicine. And you, our listeners, at 866-733-6786. 
are calling in with your questions and comments, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. This listener tweets, what can we all be doing to keep kids safer while they wait for the vaccine? Feels like we all pulled together to try to protect our elders, but kids are an afterthought. Grace Lee, you mentioned that you are concerned about kids, and I do want to ask you about your reaction to I guess a series of decisions that California has made with respects with respect to school reopening. First of all, are you a parent uh, of a kid under 12 or would you be comfortable sending your kid to school where masks are not required right now? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, I again, I'll just um, you know, highlight the the um, idea that there's a community level mitigation strategies and then there's individual level mitigation strategies. Um, for our communities where they are, where, it, where schools are highly vaccinated, both kids and all the staff working in those schools, you know, in general, I would feel pretty comfortable with the idea that um, uh, my a child in a highly vaccinated setting would be protected. Um, and my comfort level with that is much greater than if I'm uh, in a, have a child in a school, uh, let's say under 12, so elementary and perhaps some middle schools, uh, where there are a large proportion of children who don't have the opportunity to get vaccinated yet, or perhaps in school districts where um, a large proportion of the staff um, uh, are not receiving the vaccine. And I think that uh, as a parent, uh, thinking about my own kids and wanting to make sure that I could protect them as much as possible, the one easy thing I can always do is ask my own kids to wear a mask. I will say the one thing I've learned through this pandemic is that um, kids are unbelievably good at wearing masks. Um, in the beginning of this pandemic, we weren't sure if it was even possible, uh, but we have uh, been able to see kids go back to school safely uh, with appropriate mitigation measures in place and in the absence of vaccine for anyone. So I do think in particular, young kids do a great job at wearing masks. Um, I also you know, think schools are a great opportunity for us to educate our, our kids about not only protecting themselves, but also um, really building in that philosophy of what we need to do to protect communities. And I think teachers can be a great role model for kids in this instance in really thinking about what their choices are and being able to do both of those things. Um, so yes, my, uh, you know, my advice to uh, my own children or uh, friends of young children would be, it is very reasonable to wear a mask in schools um, because we're in the majority of uh, schools with younger kids who are not able to be vaccinated. I just think it's not only protecting themselves, but it's also protecting other individuals in that school. So um, I am in favor of it, and I am glad that California um, has uh, gone forward with continuing to recommend masking in schools at this point. Yes, California, though, revised its mandate and said that it would be up to individual districts to decide whether to enforce that mask requirement, which arguably could take the bite out of that mandate. And in addition, as a backdrop, we have the CDC recommending optional masks for the vaccinated. I mean, where do you think about those recommendations? Um, well, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting because in healthcare settings, we continue to mask um, in order to make sure we can protect, you know, vulnerable patients who we're caring for. And I actually feel like as a healthcare provider, it is 
you know, my duty to make sure that I'm doing what I can to not only protect the patients that I directly care for, but also create environments that feel safe for people to come into and be cared for. You know, I feel like schools are um, a hybrid between, you know, community and healthcare delivery settings. But, you know, when we send our kids to school, our goal really is to ensure that we can protect the safety and health of our students. And so, you know, I recognize that there is some, um, you know, individual uh, variation that will happen. So would ask schools to assess, you know, how highly vaccinated um, their teachers and staff are and, you know, how highly vaccinated their communities are in terms of the kids being able to be vaccinated and then to make that decision accordingly. You know, I know that all teachers and school districts will want to make sure that they are providing a safe environment for kids to learn in um, and that that safety will depend on a multitude of factors, um, not just vaccine, but also just continuing to ensure that um, you know, other measures are in place uh, if needed. And again, every extra layer of protection in my mind is um, not a bad thing. I think we should make sure we're changing social norms and considering it to be acceptable if people feel like they want a mask and make people feel comfortable that it's okay to have that extra layer of protection. Let me go to caller Carmen in Oakland. Hi, Carmen. Thanks for calling in. Hi, I'm a parent of a seven-year-old with a a serious underlying health condition and, you know, deciding whether or not we're going to send her back to school in person and which type of, you know, protocols we should be using. And I'm wondering, what have we learned about the transmissibility and impact of the Delta variant from countries who've already seen major um, increases in case rates, such as England and India? I haven't been able to find that that data. Mm, thanks, Carmen. Paul Offit, could you uh, respond to Carmen? And, and I would just add, what do we know about COVID transmissibility in kids as well? I mean, we know that uh, the earlier uh, virus was not shown to necessarily really pummel children, of course, in the same way that it did adults and especially the elderly. But what do we know? What can you tell Carmen? No, I think what we can say about the Delta variant with confidence that it is more contagious. Um, and so therefore it's going to be more contagious in children as well. Um, but, but I don't think there's good data to suggest that it is more virulent, meaning more likely to cause severe or fatal illness. Um, but, be, but it does cause more severe disease in children because more children are getting uh, infected. So uh, I think that the, the numerator, which is to say severe disease is more is higher now because the denominator is higher, meaning that there are more children getting infected. But again, it, it looks the good news is it looks like this vaccine is going to be effective enough at preventing, you know, severe critical disease caused by the Delta variant. What worries me in terms of children, if I had a 10 year old child, what would worry me now would be that last year when when the, the winter, this is basically a winter respiratory virus. And last year, last last winter, You'd have 2,000 deaths a day, 3,000 deaths a day, 4,000 deaths a day, and everybody was aware of that. And when children went back to school, everyone was aware of that. So people were pretty good about masking, social distancing, trying to to put children and and the teachers who who taught them at the least risk possible. Now you're coming into, you know, fall and winter, and you may or may not have a vaccine for the 6 to 12-year-old. I mean, you have a vaccine for the 12 to 17-year-old, but unfortunately, only about 25% of those in that age range have gotten the vaccine. So still 75% are left. Left unprotected. If you didn't have a vaccine for the six to twelve year old, and a lot of 
12 to 17 year olds weren't getting vaccinated and you go back to school again, I worry that this year we won't be as good about masking and social distancing. And when the winter comes, that there would be a surge that would you know, disproportionately affect those who are most vulnerable, i.e. those who are not vaccinated. So I hope we have a vaccine by, by, by fall so that we can vaccinate the six to 12 year old and really try and make sure that that, that group is as protected as can be. Well, a couple of things. Pat asks, when will vaccines be available for children under 12 years old? Do you have any intel for us? <laughs> um, uh, on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, we are asked to set aside dates um, uh, in terms of, of considering these issues like, like approval through either emergency use authorization or, or full approval. Um, but we haven't, but I can tell you that it's not going to happen in the next two weeks, which is always a two week uh, uh, period where you have to put it on the federal register. I, I, what I hear from talking to people is that there should be data that, that would be available by, by fall, where you would have at least a few months of, of efficacy data for this vaccine so that you would be able to, uh, um, I think, approve it through at least through emergency use authorization. If, we're, if we want just three months of efficacy data, it could be approved through EUA. If we want six months of, of efficacy data could be proved full, for, through full licensure. And it's going to really depend on what the, F, what the FDA holds as its standard. The difference between the, the children that are six to 12 years old as compared to the 12 to 17 year old is the, is the 12 to 17 year old basically got the same dose you know, that, that adults were getting. When you go to the six to, to, to 12 year old, you don't know whether the dose and dosing interval is the same. And so those are the so-called phase one studies, the dose ranging studies. So they have to be much more extensive than, than were done, say, for that 12 to to, to 15 year old study by Pfizer. And, and that's really, I think, what, it, what is hanging it up time wise is, is you want to have extensive phase one studies. Yes. Well, let me go to Rebecca in Oakland. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a parent of two kids. And um, I think uh, I'm going to, I think, push back on a lot of what's been said thus far in the sense that um, I think. You know, it's it's been kind of overwhelmingly proved that COVID is, does not pose a huge risk to children, especially under 10, especially the kids, you know, who, for whom there's not a vaccine yet. And yet we continue to kind of put the burden of all of these restrictions onto kids. Um, you know, they're supposed to continue masking. Um, you know, we weren't sure until maybe... April or May that there was actually going to be full-time school again. And there has been, I think, far too much um, fear and, uh, and attention to the risk of COVID to kids and far too little on all of the restrictions, all of the responses to COVID, like shutting down schools for a whole yeah. year and what that has done. Rebecca, and, thanks. And so I just want, yeah. Well, I... I... I wanted to see what Grace Lee had to say about your point. I mean, of course, one of the things we've done shows about how children have, there have been concerns about children and their mental health and mental health declines that have seemed to jump during the pandemic. And some experts have attributed to that to school closures and so on. I'm wondering, Grace Lee, what your reaction is to Rebecca and, and whether or not there are cases where it would not be appropriate for unvaccinated kids to wear masks, for example. Like, is there something about that that would inhibit their ability to feel like they're going back to, to some form of, an, of a normal, healthy life? 
Yeah, I think, I think it cuts both ways. So I think first I'll just say that schools can have the capability of opening up safely. I recognize not all schools felt comfortable with that early on and during the pandemic, but um, I, you know, strongly feel um, that uh, kids need to be back in school. And I also strongly feel that we need to make sure that um, kids feel safe in school and teachers feel safe in school. I mean, I do think that it's really important for all of us to um, create a safe space where people, where kids can learn effectively. And I do believe school reopening is a key component of that um, for schools that haven't been able to reopen yet. Um, I do also just want to say, though, that uh, as a clinician, you know, there, there are, although it's not as common as we see in older adults, you know, we've seen kids die from COVID. Um, and every one of those deaths to me is a preventable death. Um, I've also seen kids pretty sick um, in ICUs with um, MISC or multi-inflammatory system disease in children. Um, and I, you know, that also has significant impact on kids. Uh, in addition, I, I actually feel like we don't yet have our hands around um, what the long-term consequences of COVID infection might be. I think it's particularly challenging to understand what PASC or this post-acute sequelae of COVID infection um, looks like in children, in part because, um, you know, uh, children, uh, we, we focus so much of our attention on the older adults, uh, which I think has been incredibly important. I think we don't fully yet understand the burden of uh, what COVID infection has done to children. Um, and I'll just say that as a, a parent of two kids, you know, I think that um, at least my, you know, kids, want to feel safe in doing the activities that they're doing. They have definitely felt like after vaccination that they are much more comfortable doing activities and they're much less anxious about interacting with others. So for them, it's been sort of um, personally helpful to feel like they can interact more normally, um, having that mm -hmm. ability to protect themselves. That said, you know, um, what I teach my own kids is just to carry a mask with them. And if they're ever in a situation where they feel like it's not, um, they're not as comfortable, that it's okay for them to put on a mask in that situation to, to protect themselves. If they're in a small group, um, uh, you know, closed setting, or they don't feel like they're able to um, uh, be as safe. And, and I, you know, frame it as a choice that they can make. Um, and I, you know, trust that actually, um, I've been, again, surprised at how smart kids are in understanding the context and the situation. And uh, they actually have a huge level of awareness of, of their own safety. And so anything I can do to make them feel safe and protected is sort of, I think, um, a reasonable thing. Dr. Yeah. Off, Paul Offit, would you prefer that schools require masks come fall, given what you were saying about the winter? Yes, I, I think uh, Rebecca makes makes a good point in part, but the, the, certainly when the virus rolled into this country, um, it disproportionately affected and killed older people. I think 93% of the deaths were in people over 55. And the mantra at the time was children get infected less infected, get infected less uh, frequently and less severely. And that was true. But as Grace, uh, Dr. Lee pointed out, they certainly can get infected. I mean, there's been at least 4 million reported infections. And those are just people that have been tested and found to be infected, at least 500,000 in the zero to four uh, year age group. Um, this MIS-C, this multi-system inflammatory disease affects roughly one out of every thousand children who has COVID. Um, there's been at least 300 deaths, and that's an underestimate. And, and so, so this fact, this, this, this 
this virus falls really in the same range of suffering and hospitalization and death as, as other infections for which we have vaccines for children. So I, I, children do need to be vaccinated. If they're not going to be vaccinated because we don't have it uh, in time and we head into fall and winter, I really do think we need to mask and social distance um, or else we're going to have a vulnerable population of children who are going to be susceptible to this virus. Well, Mimi asks, my daughter received the J&J vaccine over three months ago. Should she receive a booster dose of an mRNA vaccine such as Pfizer or Moderna? Paula, but this has come up a lot among people who have gotten the J&J shot, wondering if they should seek out a dose of another vaccine. What do you think? Um, I don't think there's any evidence for that now. I mean, the, the J&J vaccine um, appeared to induce excellent protection against severe critical disease. And, and when you looked at the, the so-called cellular immunity after that, that dose, it really approximated the cellular immunity that you saw after the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. And, and the reason cellular immunity is important is it predicts longer-term protection, cells like T helper cells and, and B cells. So I, I don't think there's any evidence for that now. I'm not sure why that's sort of the take on a life of its own. Certainly, it's not a, uh, a CDC recommendation. So I think that getting a J&J vaccine put that, the person who received it, in good stead. Staying with J&J for just a moment, uh, Paul Offit. This week, the FDA ordered Johnson & Johnson to put a label on its vaccine because of the risk of, of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, if I'm saying that correctly. This is a rare neuro- neurological disorder. How concerned should people be about this syndrome? Well, again, the, the key word here is rare. There were roughly 100 cases per 12.8 million doses. So that's basically one case per 128,000 people. So if you're in a stadium of 100,000 people and everybody got the J&J vaccine, fewer than one person would have this problem. Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a, a problem that, that, that you know, can cause muscle weakness, that can sort of ascend from the legs upward. Um, generally, it, it, it is self-resolving, although it can be severe. There's about 3,000 to 6,000 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome in the United States every year, uh, just as back rate. Um, so I think it's, a, it's an extremely rare side effect. Clearly, the benefits of the vaccine outweigh its risks. But um, um, I think, the, you know, the CDC and the FDA should be applauded for having the kind of systems in place that allow them to detect these very, very rare risks. So at this point, you would be okay, say, if a family member got J&J. You're, you're feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> Yes, because I think that the disease is far worse than the vaccine. Also, it would be interesting, and hopefully these studies will be done, is it will be interesting to see whether or not um, um, the, the COVID also is associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome. We've already found that out for so-called myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle associated with mRNA vaccines. I mean, that too was a very rare phenomenon, roughly one in 20,000 people or somewhere in that range who get mRNA vaccines can suffer that. But if you look at people who were just infected with the virus, this was a study done um, in the Big Ten conference looking at athletes. They took uh, uh, hundreds of people who had already uh, received uh, mRNA, uh, who who had gotten uh, COVID to see whether or not they uh, they had evidence of myocarditis, and about one in forty five did. So so the, so you you get myocarditis with COVID. Huh, interesting. Well, we will definitely have more after the break with Dr. Offit and Dr. Lee. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a member of the FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee. Dr. Grace Lee is Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford Children's Health and Stanford University School of Medicine, and a member of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. We're talking about the Delta variant, vaccines generally the risk to kids, the risk to the immunocompromised. We are getting your questions at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Dr. Lee, uh, another set of questions that we're getting from listeners is the issue of boosters. Right now, the CDC is not recommending that fully vaccinated people receive a booster or a third shot, especially if they got, say, Pfizer. I bring up Pfizer because Pfizer has been pushing for the government to approve a third dose. And we've heard, of course, that Israel has begun giving boosters to certain patients there who got doses early on. Can you talk about why the CDC is not recommending that fully vaccinated people receive a third shot right now? So at our last open ACIP meeting, the topic of boosters certainly came up. And what I would say is that um, in terms of decision making for um, recommendations for the U.S., the ACIP follows a very uh, prescribed process uh, for decision making that is, a, a, you know, uses the evidence to recommendations framework. Um, that's you know published on the ACIP website. What I would say that came up at the last open meeting was this discussion about um, how much data is needed in order to make a recommendation, uh, any recommendation, and specifically um, what data are available. And what I would say is, is that it would be really helpful <laughs> to see uh, the available data um, uh, as opposed you know, to hearing about it on, on the news <laughs> and also being able to actually understand what the potential impact would be, which is, a, which is what we typically do as part of our decision-making. Um, with that being a focus on, are there people who are fully vaccinated, uh, who um, go on to have severe disease, hospitalization, or death, and are not currently protected, um, for example, by two doses of an mRNA vaccine or one dose of a J&J vaccine. So um, we uh, still need to make sure that we have the data to make a, a rational decision about use of a vaccine. I, our hope is that that data will come through and then we can have an open discussion and a transparent discussion about where the data are and uh, what would make sense for the U.S. population. Paul Offit, do you see the U.S. moving in this direction? The way Israel well, has at some soon that it's likely, certainly not soon. I, I think that the key number is exactly the number that that uh, Dr. Lee focused on, which is right now zero point eight percent of people who are hospitalized or killed by this virus have been fully vaccinated. Um, that means the vaccine is doing what it's supposed to do. If that number starts to rise and becomes five percent, 
10% or 15%, that despite full vaccination, that 10 or 15% of people who are hospitalized or killed are fully vaccinated. I think then, obviously, we're going to start to consider uh, booster dosing. Um, and so I'm not sure where that line is, but, but there is a line. I would imagine it would be two, three, four, maybe five years before we really need a booster dose. Vaccines are, are, are as a generally true of all vaccines, are, are much better at protecting severe critical illness than they are mild illness. The, the protection against mild illness can fade uh, over, over a year, two years, three years, but usually, usually severe critical uh, lasts much longer. It's the way our immune system works. So I'm optimistic that we're not going to need a, a booster vaccine soon. First of all, it's been hard enough to just get people to get uh, their first vaccine. It's going to be also hard to mass produce and get that second dose out there. And, and who are going to be vaccinating are those people who've already been vaccinated. Uh, right now, we need to vaccinate the people who are not vaccinated. That is the problem in this country. Booster dosing is not the critical issue now. Yes, and that's what the World Health Organization is saying as well. I do want to just take a moment, Grace Lee, to talk about concerns that if we aren't vaccinating the population enough, that more dangerous variants will continue to emerge. I mean, we know right now that there are thousands of variants, but that there are a few, like Delta, for example, that end up being ones that you really need to watch and gaining a foothold uh, in countries, for example, like now in the U.S. And could you just help us understand how important it is for for there to be a large enough number of people who are vaccinated to try to tamp down the risk of new, more dangerous variants emerging? Uh, yes. So, I mean, I think for uh, uh, Dr. Offit alluded to this earlier, and um, in my opinion, I agree that if you're vaccinated, you're, you're probably less likely to transmit. You're certainly less likely to develop severe disease. Um, having a greater uh, uh, prevalence of community level vaccination, having a higher rate of vaccination in communities clearly is protecting communities um, against transmission and severe disease. Um, you know, again, uh, we are doing reasonably well in the Bay Area because we are a highly vaccinated community. Um, I also want to just point out one other um, aspect of what Dr. Offit mentioned, which is, uh, you know, really trying to ensure that we are providing um, uh, access and information needed to individuals who haven't received the vaccine um, in the U.S., but also, you know, recognizing that we are a uh, global community and that it is really important for us to continue to uh, uh, really partner with um, uh, other agencies, other countries to really uh, think about how to uh, protect us uh, at, a, at, a, at a broader level, because uh, the thing with this virus is viruses are always smarter than us. We can continue to block and tackle. We can continue to try and make different formulations of vaccines. But unless we're using vaccines, we're not going to get to the place where we can really um, uh, feel mm. that uh, we've outwitted the virus. Um, so I do think that this issue of making sure that not only uh, amongst uh, those who uh, need to still uh, have the ability to receive vaccine in our country, but also, uh, again, being very mindful of the fact that variants don't just emerge in the U.S., they emerge from elsewhere. And so if we, if we don't work together as a global community to make sure we're delivering and providing access to vaccines um, in countries where COVID is continuing to uh, rage, I think, you know, we're not going to be done, uh, no matter how much we wish we were done in the U.S. Paul Offit, do you think that that a new, more dangerous variant will emerge that could infect 
vaccinated people that could go beyond the vaccine. Is it a matter of time or a distant likelihood? It's certainly possible. I mean, we, we've had three variants. I mean, the first variant was the, the virus that left China. The, the virus that raised its head in Wuhan was not the virus that left China. That was the first variant, the so-called D614G variant, which then gave way to some extent to the alpha variant, which has given way to the delta variant. That's three variants in a year and a half. I think it's fair to say we're not done with variants. The virus continues to mutate, and it may be able to mutate successfully away from immunization, that, from, from immunity that's induced either by vaccination or natural infection. I hope not. But certainly the degree to which it's allowed to continue to circulate, it, it increases that opportunity. That's why it's all the more important to stop spread in this country by making sure we're fully vaccinated. But again, realize that there's 195 countries out there. Most of them have not given a single dose of, of, of vaccine. This virus is going to continue to mutate. I think we're going to certainly continue to see more variants. And it's possible we could have one that begins, that is it's critically uh, evades uh, um, the protection afforded by vaccination or natural infection, which case we will have to make a second generation vaccine. Kathy in Yukaipa is on the line. Kathy, thanks for waiting. Oh, thank you for your attention on this topic. As an individual with an autoimmune disease and fully vaccinated, I still find myself in this uncertain mindset, wondering if the medication that I take uh, has blunted my body's uh, reaction to the vaccine. Mm. Is there any guidance yet that has emerged for uh, immunocompromised individuals? Thank you, Kathy. Uh, Grace Lee. Uh, there's certainly um, data coming from uh, different academic groups uh, across the country and in other countries that have highlighted the importance of um, monitoring the immune response. I think one of the challenges we've run into is not having precise correlates of immunity to understand, you know, uh, is it a level of antibody that protects us? Is it a, um, you know, type of, is it neutralizing antibody that protects us? You know, what exactly can we, can we rely on uh, to measure to understand uh, whether we're fully protected. Right now, um, it, most folks are using sort of um, antibody titers. We don't actually recommend that because um, there is no clear correlate of immunity there. Um, and we believe that probably cell-mediated immunity, immunity also plays a role. Um, I think your question is a good one, though. In general, we know that people who are immune compromised um, have a tougher time handling infections uh, than those who are immunocompetent. Um, what I would say is, is that I, I think you know, we certainly um, would appreciate partnerships with communities of patients and clinicians caring for these patients to better understand uh, what the durability of immunity is and how treatment can modulate that. Um, and I do think that with additional data, then the, the recommendations can be more precise. Um, at this point right now, um, what I would say is that clinicians and patients are um, uh, doing a great job of trying to make sure that they are optimally protected. Um, and again, my hope is that if we have better definitions of what correlates of immunity are, we can better guide that decision making. Well, I hope that answers your question, Kathy. Let me go to Robert in Carmichael. Hi, Robert. Hi. I'm over 65. I had my second shot of Pfizer by Valentine's Day, and so you can see that I'm very much behind the vaccine. I, I think that kind of paraphrasing the movie Cool Hand Luke, what we have here is a problem of communication. And I think that a lot of the people, I'm going to display my inherent bias here and say that a lot of the people who are not vaccinated probably also play the lottery. 
And I think that they understand gambling terms. And I'm wondering whether or not a public health program could be put together that would point out to people that their odds of getting COVID are much, much greater than winning the lottery. And yet they invest good money in that Mm. and are unwilling to get a shot. So I wonder what the guests might think about that. Yeah, Robert's raising... An important point, I think, also more broadly, Paul Offit, about just persuading people to get vaccinated, whether using the lottery as an analogy is is the way to go. I mean, we've been getting statistics about how young people have the highest cumulative COVID-19 infection rates in the U.S. and that a good like three quarters of them say they intend to get the vaccine, but still haven't done it yet. Um, you know, we're also hearing about some people being hesitant to get vaccinated because because vaccines, they don't have final FDA approval. Paul Offit, I want to ask you about that directly since you are on the FDA advisory um, committee. Can you just talk about the importance of persuading people to get vaccinated? What needs to be done to do that? Sure. Um, first of all, Cool Hand Luke was a great movie. And Mr. Other Martin said, what we have here is a failure to communicate. That line has lived on forever. Um, what I would say, the, the critical issue in terms of communication is trying to determine why it is that people are making that decision not to vaccinate. If it's a matter of access, you can address that. If it's a matter of education, then I think it's, a, then, then I think it's about trying to find out who in that community is influential to, to that person and, and then giving them the information to then help convince them. If it's a matter of just inertia and they need a nudge, then maybe these things that are going on like free beers or win a lottery, maybe that helps. What worries me in all this is, is that at some level, I think there is a hardcore group in this country that are just simply science denialists. And no matter how rational you are or how clear you are or how compelling you are or how logical you are, it's not going to make a difference. And it's interesting that you bring up lot at some level, because I think people are unable to really assess risk, as we've talked about before. So if you have a, a risk of one in 30,000 for the J&J vaccine on Guillain-Barre syndrome, or one in 20,000 for myocarditis for the, uh, for the mRNA vaccines, people will think, well, that, that vaccine is not for me, not realizing that, that over the next few years, you're going to have two choices, which is either be vaccinated or naturally infected. I mean, this virus isn't going away anytime soon. And to be naturally infected is never the good choice. I mean, this virus is, is heinous. I, what, what amazes me about this virus, and this is part of the communication thing, what, what this virus was billed as coming out of China was false. It was billed as a winter respiratory virus that, like influenza, can cause severe and fatal pneumonia. It is far worse than that. This virus causes you to have an immune response against the, the lining of your own blood vessels. I mean, it causes vasculitis, inflammation of blood vessels. Therefore, every organ system is if your body's at risk. It causes long-term effects that I've seen with no previous respiratory viruses. This virus should scare the hell out of people. And it it certainly Mm. has killed more than 600,000 people. It's crippled economies across the globe. And still people are choosing not to take their magic ticket and magic ride out of this, which is a vaccine. So I'm not sure how you reach reach that last group of science denialists. And maybe the answer is only that you compel them to do it and and move Mm. them in. The University of Pennsylvania Pennsylvania healthcare system now mandates vaccines. If you work there, you have to get a vaccine. Our hospital, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, is moving there. I think we will be there soon. But, you know, sometimes when people refuse to do the right thing, you have to compel them to do it. Well, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, A lot of people pushing for mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers or in healthcare settings, for example. And it sounds like you support that. 
Paul Offit, Grace Lee, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I do want to ask you, Paul Offit, though, uh, when we can expect full approval from the FDA of the Pfizer J&J and Moderna vaccine. Right. It's hard for me to predict that. Um, what I, so I'll take yeah. a guess as I would as, as a normal citizen. I'm not speaking as a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, the, the, the line that's being drawn between um, full approval and just emergency use authorization is one of length of follow-up for efficacy. That's the only difference. The size of the trials are not, are not the difference. These trials, the trials that were done are as big as any pediatric or adult vaccine trial. And safety follow-up is not different, which is two months after the last dose. That's true of any vaccine. The only difference is length of follow-up for for efficacy. When we approved these vaccines in December, we could say that they were effective for, for three months. We didn't know whether it was effective for longer than that. The line really here is six months. So there are six months of data now. And my understanding is that these companies have, have uh, supported or have, have submitted for a uh, full approval. I don't know. I mean, if I had to make a guess, I would hope it would happen by the end of the summer, but it's hard to predict. Hmm. Well, Elizabeth writes, one of the guests described transmission of COVID in the community and mild infections as subtle issues, but in families with two working parents, life becomes completely upended with a child who tests positive for COVID. The child is not able to go to school for two weeks and no child care providers are allowed to come into the home. My vaccinated husband and my unvaccinated three-year-old recently had COVID. Fortunately, I am on maternity leave, so I was able to hold down the fort. But if I had been working, I don't know what we would have done. And this listener writes, I recently caught the Delta variant while traveling to Mexico. I am fully vaccinated with Pfizer. I traveled with friends and half of us caught COVID, even though we wore masks every time we were indoors. I think it is wrong for the CDC and California to not recommend that fully vaccinated people wear masks when Delta is highly contagious. Gracie, we have been seeing, of course, pushback since the CDC made that recommendation that un, that fully vaccinated people could go without masks in most indoor settings. What would the CDC be looking to to determine if changes are needed and that needs to be modified to require masks again? Yeah, it's, it's so hard. You know, I think, um, you know, CDC is put in a position where um, they are asked to make recommendations for the country. And again, I'll just point out the fact that everything is local and everything is context. And so you really have to understand your own context in order to make the best possible decisions for your area. Um, and it's you try and do that as a country, but you really can't because there is so much variability um, across the way. So um, I, I do think um, that'll be important. You know, I anticipate, and again, uh, this is not part of our decision-making process for ACIP, but would just anticipate that, again, data will drive decision-making. So I think that if there are rising rates in highly vaccinated communities, for example, that that might, you know, be the tipping point in which, you know, things would change. I, the other thing I would say is, is that I think, um, you know, it's, it's easy to uh, criticize these recommendations because no recommendation would be perfect. And no matter what you recommend, um, you know, some people will agree and some people will disagree. Um, but it's really important to remember that we all have to remain um, flexible in our mindset and ensure that we are um, able to accommodate dynamic decision making because decision making by definition should reflect the conditions of that moment. And if things change over time, it's not a failure of decision making. Actually, I think that's a strength of decision making. Mm. Well, I certainly hope that today's show helped inform people's risk management decisions, which we have just been doing so much of in the last 18 months. Grace Lee, Paul Offit, thank you both so much for talking to us. Thank you, Susan Britton, for producing this segment. And thank you, listeners. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio. 
and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.